You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you guys haven't had the opportunity to check out the Navigator Series, it's a brand new lineup from Lacrosse. They have the Windrose for men and women. They also have the Atlas, and that's what I wore during my rut vacation this fall. Check them out. They're very comfortable. Uh, it's a traditional rubber boot kind of mixed with a traditional hunting hiking boot they've mashed it together and the outcome is the navigator series check it out at lacrossefootwear.com XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. In this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast, we again bring you one of the top Houndsman uh, English breeders in the country, and I'm going to let Steve key this up because this this recording, this interview took place on the White River National Wildlife Refuge in Arkansas. Steve, you've been traveling out there for a lot of years and making a lot of uh, friends and building relationships and you were able to capture a, a really great interesting interview with one of uh, the English breed's top breeders. Well that's right Chris and we haven't touched on the English breed much in this podcast and we certainly want to reach out to all those breeds that we can out there and there's a lot of them and of course we have a lot of our friends out west that hunt the crossbreeds and all but yeah um this interview with Murray Reagan was uh, really special to me. Uh, one, part of it was the setting. It was uh, set in a beautiful campground there under the big oak trees that that area is so famous for, right along the banks of the White River. And uh, that's been a mecca for coon hunters for a number of years. I know I've been going 10 years now. Uh, was invited out by my friend Nubbin Moore and uh, but uh, yeah we got together with Murray in fact I first met Murray out at the White River when we were staying at, at uh, the Maddox Bay Landing there the place we used to stay but uh, um, Murray's a, a great guy real warm guy to uh, uh, to talk to he's uh, uh, very much dedicated to uh, his dogs as you'll see in this interview yeah, the thing I've always noticed about Murray, I, I kind of started following him back in the UKC message board days, and he was just a guy that, that when he spoke or when he said something, you could you could just feel the experience and and where he was at in in his game as a houndsman, and it was uh, you know coming from a a standpoint of a guy that's been there and done that. So this is a great interview. I'm glad you got this one. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was one of those times where we were just sitting in Murray's camper with the windows open. You could feel the breezes coming through. We sat there at the table face-to-face -face and uh, and just talked dogs and uh, 
talked his, about his English dogs and all the famous stud dogs that he bred this uh, this uh, female too. But I, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll talk about uh, about the dog and her name will come up a lot. And uh, but uh, it it was it was a great time for me. It gave me uh, I had to work in some time to get away from that crew that I'm with there because. We're camping probably a couple of miles up the road from where Murray camps. And uh, in in fact, uh, he came over that night after the interview and we uh, ran uh, the Randy Smith from Mississippi and uh, not Randy Smith from Pennsylvania. That's right. Okay, (laughs) it gets confusing sometimes. (laughs) And Morris Hardy, who's quite a character, and hopefully we'll get him on on uh, the podcast sometime. But anyway, uh, one of the specialties about our week out there is the fish fry that uh, Randy and Morris put on for us, and it—I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Crappie, uh, all the trimmings. And Murray came over and joined us for dinner that night, and we just had a great time. So I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this one. Well, that's part of uh, what we're trying to promote on this podcast, Steve, is that fellowship. It's great to see a young dog go out there and do great things and put game in the tree, but there isn't anything that replaces the value of the relationships we can build, and, and hounds have been good to me in that aspect. So glad to hear that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's the greatest reward to this hound sports for me, and we've said it on here many times, Chris, and uh, it's the friendships, it's the people, that, and then centered upon these great animals that we've been entrusted with. So, uh, yep, that's what does it for me, for yep, sure. Yep, been a great vehicle for us. Well, uh, on that note, when we're talking about taking care of your hounds, don't forget to... Uh, Look at our friends out there at W Hunting Supply and check out all of the things that they have to uh, keep you in the hound game, keep you tracking those dogs effectively. Download their app, and uh, if you've got technical questions, don't be afraid to call them up and get some help and support. Their customer service is great, and you'll you be disappointed. That's, that's what keeps people coming back is that customer service. I can mention W Hunting Supply to anybody out there across the country, and the first thing out of their mouth is, man, they've got great customer service. And you can find our Houndsman XP long sleeve T-shirt, preserve, promote, and protect our heritage, our hunting heritage T-shirt at W Hunting Supply on Join the Fight page, so you can help support this podcast too. Absolutely. Send in those cards and letters, friends. Keep this podcast on the air. That's right. (laughs) Let's get to this interview, Steve. I'm looking forward to it. Let's do it, Chris. Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast. This is your host, Steve Fielder, today coming to you from the beautiful White River National Wildlife Refuge in Arkansas. I'm here today with my friend Murray Reagan, who has camped here in a beautiful uh, campground in the woods here, right near the White River. Murray, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Steve? I'm doing really good, really good. Been meaning to get up with you for quite a while, and uh, we're finally getting it done down here. Uh, We're both down here uh, hunting and uh, 
It's been kind of a tradition now for me for about 10 years. How many years have you been coming down? Oh, probably six or eight years. Six or eight years altogether, yeah. yeah. How did you first find out about the White River and get involved with it? Uh, Tommy Rowland had a – he used to come down and camp out at uh, Sweat's Camp, and he yeah. invited me down one night, and uh, and we floated across Maddox Bay on a pontoon boat and hunted over there. and Right. And uh, I enjoyed it. Right. Well, this uh, we talk about Maddox Bay is kind of a loop that comes off the White River, makes a kind of an easterly and then southerly direction, and then loops back west uh, back and rejoins the White River. Right. Um, I think there's 160,000 acres here. Isn't that what they what they say? It's about five to ten miles wide and 90 miles long. Yeah, that's it's, quite amazing, isn't and, it? And four wheeler trails forever. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the thing with most areas uh, with riding four-wheelers on wildlife management areas and all is it can be a a difficult thing to find, especially uh, in most parts of the country. But down here, there there is just unlimited trails to ride. Right, and especially when the water's down, you can get around real good. But now the water's kind of high, so it's kind of limits access. Right, Well, this is all part of that Mississippi uh, Delta. Uh, this We're in what they call the Arkansas Delta over here. And, uh, of course, over on the other side of the river on the Mississippi Delta. But uh, the thing that draws me over here every year is these beautiful woods. Uh, the timber that's here is just unreal. Oh, just absolutely great. Yeah. Big big timber, lots of woods. Yeah. Plenty it's of a, water. Oh, yeah. It reminds me, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like a cathedral to me. I, I get, I've been, like I say, 10 years in a row I've been coming here, and you basically can offer these trails if you don't, if you're not dealing with these bayous and these little lakes and swampy places where the water backs up, uh, you can basically turn a dog loose anywhere you want without fear of him getting on the highway. or Right. No houses, no no highway noise, just exactly. the quiet woods. Yeah, for you know. sure. And, uh, you know, in the early days that I started coming here, my friend Nubbin Moore that I'm here, that invited me down here for the first time, has been coming since, I think he said 1969, and maybe a little earlier than that. But when we first started coming in 2010, there seemed to be a lot more hunters, and it was a lot more difficult to find a place. Yeah. Uh, well, you could turn loose anywhere, but the dogs were apt to get with some other right. group of dogs, you know. You found so, that to be... Uh, more, more hunters, social media, more people know about it yeah, now than yeah. used to. And uh, Well, you know, this week it's been fairly quiet, though, where we've been hunting. And the river... As uh, you know, the flood stage at at uh, St. Charles, I believe, or maybe Clarendon, uh, is like 26 feet. Right. And I think it's, what, 24, 25 now. Yeah. When I noticed last week, uh, it was at 23 point something. But I think it's receding now, which, uh, but uh, that's a lot of water from all the way up. You know that Mississippi River area, and, and as it rains up there, it takes it a while to get down here, but it all comes on down. 
Right, and when it floods here, it's deep. It gets oh, deep. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've uh, we a couple places that we like to go. We we like there are two units in in uh, to explain to our listeners. There's two li- units here: the north and the south. The north unit opens around the 15th of the month, 16th, whatever, and is open. I think it goes all the way what to the end of January. January 31st. Right. And then the southern unit, which is probably more territory altogether, uh, I, I don't know, but it it opens December 1st and then closes on, I think, the 15th. 15th every year. So it's, it's only same. open two weeks, right. and it draws quite a few hunters down to that right. area. Have you ever hunted the south unit? Uh, yes. Yeah. It's, it's about the same as the north, you know. Yeah. The first, always the first few days of season, you run into more hunters, but after about a week, it cools yeah, off some, right. except for the weekends. People come down on weekends, sure. but if you hunt during the week, you have less hunters. Well, what we noticed uh, uh, when the first year I was here, uh, we did not go to the south unit, I don't believe. we, But we were hunting at a time that we could have the option of hunting down there, and uh we went all the way down, down to, I think it's called Snow Lake, uh, and there's a campground off the levee down that way, and uh, I think that's, what's that, Moon Lake or Moose, yep. Moon Lake? Moon, Moon Lake, that's yeah. on the seven-mile loop, they call it. Right, and we hunted that, and, and we enjoyed it, but we, there were a lot of hunters. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And they're starting to cut some of the timber now, but they're not... Yeah clear cutting it so you have yeah. to watch out for that and try to avoid right. the, the yeah cut that, over. and the, the thing that uh i think you know hunters hear about this and hear people like me writing about it in american cooner magazine or or whatever and and they want to come but they don't really uh understand you know what what it entails here uh, I think the basic elements uh, to coming down here to hunt is to have some kind of an all-terrain vehicle, either a, a four-wheeler or more and more people are going to side. Besides, I notice you ride a four-wheeler, and I do too. Yes. Uh, I find it a little more maneuverable and easy to get. Uh, as these trails change, you know, the big holes get wallowed out and they get deep and so with little a, auxiliary trails or four wheeler you can maneuver better around yeah around the mud holes and yeah through the woods yeah yeah then a side by side a little yeah. heavier a wider well the side by side gives you the opportunity i guess of a of a, a small size dog box where the four wheeler you know it can be a little crowded to have two dogs in that right. in that crate in the back but uh, you know that's part of the fun of hunting the white river uh, is the four-wheeling and and all of that but you don't really need one if you don't want to use one you can park yeah. on the road and cast them from the road from the gravel roads exactly and, and probably do just as good but you you'd be a lot more walking involved. right right well there's some rules that sometimes i think the hunters uh maybe don't understand is uh that you can't ride the four wheelers or your ATVs on the gravel roads. 
Right. Uh, if you read the regulations, it's a little bit confusing when it says you can't hunt from the gravel roads. Well, that doesn't mean you can't pull off and, and off the side and turn your dog loose. Right. It just means you can't road a dog down through a gravel road. And uh, there's been a little confusion about that. And then the other thing is they require you to stay on the four-wheel trails. Right. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to do because they're not clearly, some of them clearly aren't clearly marked. marked. Yeah. But I think for the most part, the coon hunters try to obey all those regulations, right. you know. Right. And uh, But uh, well, we come down for a, um, a week usually. Uh, and hunt about seven nights, and uh, that entails buying a small game license so for the state. A non-resident dollars in it. Yeah, hundred. Yeah, you can get a five-day. I think it's about eighty dollars or so, non-resident. But if you stay that seven days, that's not enough. So we go ahead and buy the 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 full year's license, and it right. expires in June. As of the following year, so I know we've come over from Batesville, Mississippi, with the uh, Winter Classic over there in February, and and hunt. You can the refuge is not open, but if you have private land over here in Arkansas that you can hunt, you right. know. So, but uh, plus you have to get a uh, twenty dollar permit yeah, to hunt on the that's refuge right. now. That's new, just last yeah. year, I believe they, yeah. uh, and, and the. Uh, the the headquarters is right here, fairly close to where we hunt. Right, and you have to carry a uh, a pamphlet with you and sign it when you hunt on the refuge. Well, I think now, since they've done that, I think they've kind of done away with that pamphlet thing now that you don't really have to carry it okay. anymore. Well, good. Since they went to the permit deal and charging you for it. I guess they figure you can just go online and okay. and see it, but always down through the years we had to carry that that permit and uh, right. Well, let's talk about uh, well anything else about the refuge that you think our listeners uh, would enjoy. Back about uh, fifteen years ago, when they supposedly found the uh, extinct uh, ivory-billed woodpecker. Mm. That stopped the timber cutting for a while, but then with all the uh, research and, and everything, they never did find a live ivory-billed woodpecker, right. so that uh, kind of opened it back up to uh, timber harvesting again. Right. Yeah, we so, noticed for the first time, I think, a couple we, of years ago, two or three years ago, that they were doing some cutting. And, oh, man, that, yeah. that just kind of is gut-wrenching to me it when sure you is. think about these this beautiful is so many these trees are so huge they're ancient they're like what 60 feet tall yeah or more 80 last night i uh, this this walker pup of mine he 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 hasn't got it all down right as far as getting you know his accuracy but he's working (laughs) on it and a lot of feed tracks yeah but those big trees you know i think he likes these big trees because it seems like when he trees he's always on a huge tree you know and we do see a coon on on them occasionally and last night had one peeping out of a hole up in one of those big oaks and uh, but uh, and along the the bayous and the water usually you're gonna 
see these big bell-bottom cypress trees, and they're most all, all, mostly always and, hollow. And cypress knees as tall as your head in places. Oh, yeah. Pretty in, pretty it's, incredible, isn't it? It sure is. We, uh, uh, it, it's worth it, really, to come out if you're an outdoorsman it, and just and come. To, to me, it's not the amount of coons you catch. No. It's just the experience. The, exactly. And it's like us sitting here talking. You get to make new friends. You get to, you know, spend sure. time in these woods and enjoy that. It's that's every time I the, come the experience, down. Experience. Yeah. Know. Every year that I come down here, I meet somebody different or somebody new. I met a boy from uh, uh, Tennessee a couple of days ago, and a fellow that I knew was with him from South Carolina, but. Uh, and then last year I met the coon hunting game warden down here, you yeah. know, and uh, Randy Rhodes. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so you uh, watch him. He'll get <laughs> no, <laughs> no, he's a pretty good fella. Yeah, yeah he uh, and he know has a lot of information, you know, about the refuge and uh, he's a all, big, big time coon hunter too. He enjoys oh, the yeah. sport. Yeah. Well, you know, there's so there's a lot of traditions that have started here in the White Rock. The uh, the Black and Tan people uh, started a reunion that they now hold or have held for many years over Thanksgiving weekend, mm-hmm. and it started here in the refuge at a place called Sweats Camp, right on Maddox Bay, and uh, now they have it over at Mariana, over at the St. Francis. State forest over there with, uh, I think it's a state forest with uh, Philip Heron and his group yeah. over there. They meet on Wednesday before Thanksgiving and pretty much hunt right through Thanksgiving through the weekend, you know, and they have a big feed and there's cabins yeah. there. The, and there's all Jarvis and, and Jarvis, Jarvis Humphers, the founder of Tam PKC. Young. Tam Young comes mm-hmm. over and, uh, yeah, these are people that, uh, have been coon hunting for a long time, but it, it's all this sport is for me, and I know it is for you, Murray, uh, a fellowship thing. Number one, absolutely, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. I used to compete with Jarvis when I was like twelve years old. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> he, a good set. Yeah, he, go ahead. He would. Uh, he often reminds me that I was beating him in hunts when I was just a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I just got got lucky a couple of times. Well, uh, yeah, Jarvis, in fact, we had hoped that he would be able to come over this week. He had spoken to Nubbin Moore about the possibility of coming over. and uh, But I think Jar- Mr. Jarvis, is, as a lot of people call him, is, like all of us, is getting up in age a little. And uh, I think he's kind of needing somebody to, to travel along with him and and all, but man, what a legend in this sport, and what a innovator! What a he, uh, he changed he, our sport, didn't he? He absolutely That's did, true. for sure. And uh, but, uh, well, let's talk about that. You said you were hunting when you were twelve years old. Give us a little backstory: who Murray Reagan is, and where you grew up, and talk about your dad, who I know was a coon hunter, and and all. Just just let's talk about that a little bit. Well, I started coon hunting when I was around 12 with my dad. We had started together. Uh, uh, his name is Huey Reagan. He uh, was an attorney, a uh, criminal defense attorney in West Tennessee, Jackson, Tennessee. And 
Mr. Billy Merriweather. He's uh, probably not many people remember him. He's an old-timer, W.P. Merriweather. He's the one that showed me my first coon and mm. when I was a kid. And just to give you some idea how long ago it was, that was when they were building I-40 through Jackson. And we parked on Interstate 40 while they were working on a bridge there. And, uh, the, of course, the interstate was closed. They shot out the first coon I ever saw in my life with a 12-gauge shotgun <laughs> on his place, you know. Big boom. <laughs> yeah, on his place there. And yeah. Then, of course, Albert Aaron, we bought our first dog from uh, Albert Aaron. He's a supply dealer that uh, used to make a lot of the hunts back in the three-hour UKC day, hunt, hunt days. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Back in those days, there would be uh, water races, treeing contest. I even entered a coon squalling contest at Clinton, Kentucky, where uh, Joe House is from. Yeah, H- him and his wife were uh, were used to run that club. Right, right in Clinton, right in Clinton, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, and they even had a coon on a log contest. Of course, they outlawed that after a while. Sure. Yeah. And. Uh, but uh, those were the days. Yeah, those were the early days of the sport for me too. Well, I, uh, we all all the clubs had those, and I, I, it was kind of funny when I went to Texas. Uh, they called it a, a, a dog was a good event dog. They said not <laughs> an event, an event. Yeah. That means he was a good tree and contest coon on the log, coon in the keg, coon, you know. Which uh, those were uh, uh, well, let's just say the. The rules of the game have changed a lot through the years. Uh, your dad, okay, tell me about the kind of dogs you grew up with. Well, we've tried uh, uh, blue ticks and walkers and a red bone and a black and tan, but I uh, evolved into English dogs because uh, that's my daughter female. I've, was she uh, the first English dog that you had? Or no, was she was about the third or fourth. Uh-huh. How did you get what? Who? Which was your first English dog? How or what attracted you to that breed? Uh, there was a, a local guy that had a good English dog. That uh, of course I liked the, the tick dogs anyway, the blue ticks, and uh, they used to be my favorite. And then I, my dad bought uh, Rebel Jack from uh, Mister Joe Wilkinson, and he was a, a nice dog. So we started hunting him. And uh, he was a Grand Knight, a ACHA Grand Knight. He was a um, UKC. Uh, he was a uh, he was a tough competitor, mm-hmm. so he won a lot of hunts around the All country. Right. And then I called Carter Long after he. I saw he just finished his hard time Kim female, and I called Carter Long and asked him if he'd breed for a pup, and he agreed. So. Uh, and we bred uh, Rebel Jack to Hard Time Kim, and that's where uh, that's where I got started. It was through uh, Carter Long's breeding program. Yeah, I see. Okay, now uh, every, everything yeah. I every time he breed her, I'd get a pup out of Kim, and that's where I ended up with uh, with Dottie. Yeah, and she's yeah. a grand pup of Kim. Okay, and so and. Dottie now has passed. She she died recently, didn't she? She died in December from blastomycosis. Hmm. And we buried her at the Coon Dog Cemetery. Yeah, yeah, so. in Red Hill, Alabama. 
Cherokee, Alabama. Yeah, yeah. They they uh well, uh, Nubbin Moore, who's my partner there that we kind of run together a lot and all. He he had a dog that was a well-known black and tan, uh, Alabama Black Hank, and he's buried there and he had won the 25th anniversary Autumn Oaks and he won uh, the National Breed Champion a couple years and uh, was well known back in those days. And it's really great to go there to that cemetery and see those uh, those dogs and or those uh, stones. And, and there's everything from the most elaborate to to the very simple, just a cross with a dog collar hanging right. on it. You know, it's it's quite a quite an experience let's talk well we're kind of going back i i we're kind of got the cart before the horse because we're talking about dottie's passing before we talk about what she did but talk about that process of getting dottie into the coon dog cemetery uh to get her buried there yeah uh i had the uh the guy that uh, he's on the board of directors, right. and uh, he he met at my house to make a an exchange. So I got hooked up with him, and uh, that's and I just paid him a hundred dollars, and uh, and then they'll uh, show you where you can bury them, and mm-hmm. then you got to to uh, get your own tombstone set. But you have to give them some kind of uh, documentation or something about oh, they have to what be, they've right, accomplished. Right, they have to be a coon dog. Mm-hmm. They have to be a good dog. Yeah, they can't, I, I've heard them say there's no poodles buried in the coon dog right. cemetery. Yeah. It sits high on a hill and it's uh, uh, out of, uh, in a, a solitary place, but it's very well done the way it's all laid out, I think. I mean, some people might think, well, it's just a lot of dogs. I think there's over 300 in there. But uh, it sits back next to a wildlife refuge, mm-hmm. so it's. Uh, well, there uh, is, and I'm going to. I wish I had done my research properly to give this guy credit, but there is a, uh, a bluegrass singer that came out with a song last year, and it was. I listened to it on this. Uh, uh, Bluegrass Junction on satellite TV, I mean satellite radio, uh, and it's called uh, the the Coon Dog Cemetery on the Alabama line, and it's it's really a, an interesting song. It's and it was very popular too. So I think it was featured also in uh, Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, that movie. Yeah, the yes, with Reese Witherspoon and so forth. Yeah. All right, well, let's go back and talk about Dottie as a puppy. Now, to set this up for our listeners, Dottie, the UKC, does a listing in their magazine, Coonhound Bloodlines, every month of the top producing males and females of each of the seven Coonhound breeds. And they do it based on current rec- uh uh, accomplishments and then historical current titled pups right so it kind of goes hand in hand with UKC's pad pedigree pups and degrees where they show you how many puppies a dog has produced on the pedigree and how many of those dogs have earned various titles 
Now, in coon hunting, and for our listeners that may not know, there's really basically two, or has has been, two basic titles, night champion and then grand night champion. So what this listing does is list the number of puppies that that male or female produced, either they were the, the sire being the father or the dam being the mother of those puppies, uh, and then how many of those puppies went on to either earn a night champion title and then a grand night champion. Now, with Dottie, as I look at the standings, she had, I believe, 60 puppies altogether, right? Right, 60 pups. Yeah. And 51 of those, I believe, were permanently registered pups, if I'm correct. But she produced 16 night champions and then 10 more grand night champions, right? Isn't that the way that works? Night champions. Okay. It's night champions. She had... Like 16 grand knights and... Oh, she had she had sixteen knights and then ten grand knights for a total of twenty six, right? Yes, but, right. But mm-hmm. since it I've titled two more. Oh, so, have you? So it's twenty nine now. Twenty nine knight champions, twenty nine titled pups. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, that right now she's showing a percentile of of somewhere around forty five percent or so, but it might be higher now that she's got two more puppies. Right, but registered. Yeah, it started out uh, as a her as I started titling pups out of her. I noticed that uh, I might could compete in the current listing, so I started uh, titling more pups or encouraging people with pups out of her to get those titled. So there were twenty twenty, but the historical is is the one that you the most important one, the historical reproducing list. And and uh, I had to beat 21 title pups, which was uh, Red Lady and then Oakwood's Diamond. I said, well, maybe if I just try hard enough, I can get close. But I got close and even past that, you know, you know. and then uh, I noticed a walker, the top walker female had 27 title pups. I said, okay, I'm going to try to, past that you know so i started borrowing or or uh, buying back dotty pups and getting them titled and uh so and it I, became a I, quest I, for you, you yes you really you yeah. were on a mission so to speak yeah and, and i enjoy that you know the the, the challenge uh, i enjoy that as much as uh you know winning big hunts you know it's just uh it just keeps me motivated you know yeah and uh i buy them back and title them and sell them or, or borrow them and give them back or whatever, you know. The, I, I, I titled myself probably uh, somewhere around 20 of those pups. Mm-hmm. Well, in doing that, how how often do you go to a night hunt where you can earn every, points? Every weekend I can. I, I'll hunt, since they started the doubleheaders, I'll hunt uh, – three hunts on a weekend or four or, you know, or two, you know, depending mm-hmm. on how close they are. I'll yeah. even drive two hours. To, but it's just what I enjoy doing. Well, we started the doubleheaders when I was at AKC. And uh, to give the guys, you know, they drive to a club, and a lot of the hunts are ha- have 
gone from in the early days you mentioned three hour hunts and then two hour and then and then one hour and now they've kind of got a compromise in there where they have the 90 minute hunt but basically a double header is two separate events held on the same night right one hour hunts usually right exactly so um so now i can hunt uh instead of two hunts on a weekend i can hunt three or four you know yeah yeah so uh and time is money, you know. You, you don't you have you don't have as much expense uh, running around all over, and you can. Uh, right. Speaking of expense, I've probably spent ten thousand just tiling dotty pups. You know. Yeah. I imagine. I imagine. Well, okay. Um, so many questions come to mind. Uh, let's describe for the listeners. Uh, we have a lot of listeners in the West that are big game hunters. They're lion, bear, bobcat hunters. Some We have fox hunters, beaglers. All forms of hound people listen to our podcast, and we, we appreciate all of them. And we try to diversify our programming so that we can bring in as many, you know, interesting guests and so forth. But we're finding that the people that don't competition hunt with coon hounds still find it interesting, and they want to learn about it. So... Uh, you know, fundamentally, uh, you start a, a dog out. Let, let's talk about you. Where, when do you start the pup in the in the? Uh, wh- what's the regimen to bring a pup up to his first hunt? Well, when they're young, I like to uh, socialize them with other dogs. I keep mine in a about an acre pen. Uh, I don't really like them to get treed and stay treed back there in the pen so I don't want any coons in there when they're young or even older because I like to do that in the woods in a uh, controlled environment to to have a young dog tree and stay treed for hours I think it's uh, a negative it, it sets them back if you let them mm-hmm. stay treed they get burned out uh, right but uh to start hauling them and and uh, taking them to the woods probably when they're five six seven months old depends on their maturity level but i don't get serious about hunting them until they're around 10 11 months old putting mm-hmm. them in the woods and shooting coons out and yeah now when you first take them when you first go hunting actually with them are you hunting them with another dog an older dog usually i usually start out just me and the pup just mm-hmm. go you know just get them used to hauling loading in the truck take them to the woods walk them around for I'll do that uh, two or three, four times, and then I'll start hunting with another dog, but not shoot a coon out yet because I want to make make sure they don't uh, get set back by a coon falling on them or get a, you know afraid of the rifle when you shoot mm-hmm. a gun. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll shoot a gun around the house to to get them used to that. Right. So. Uh-huh. Do you? Uh, I had this conversation the other day with somebody about gun shyness and saying that usually hounds aren't gun shy. But do you have any particular, you know, I I would do things with puppies that might be overkill, but drop a feed pan, you know, around or just just make noise, leave a radio playing, you know, around their kennel when they're little. And and, and do you have any any ideas on that? Well, mine get used to that around the house. You know, of course, we... We target practice and shoot the gun, and things are always dropping and 
baseball, yeah. and my son works on his four-wheelers out back, so he, they get used to that, oh, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. How many uh, – well, do you raise quite a few puppies and sell to the public or, or? – uh, Yes. Do you? Oh, well, that's I, good. I, I, I bred Dottie about every time she'd come in heat till she died because mm-hmm. I thought that was her greatest contribution would be through her pups. Sure, yeah. Okay, Dottie, you picked her out of a litter yourself? Uh, well, I owned, uh, like I said, I bred uh, Rebel Jack to Carter Long's Hard Time Kim, right. and I got a a male pup out of that. But then later on, he bred Kim to uh, Virginia Swamp Rooster. Mm-hmm. And so I got a, a, a male pup out of that, and I kept him. His name was uh, Rebel Thunder, and that's Dottie's daddy, Dottie's okay. sire, out, mm-hmm. out of Kim and Virginia Swamp Rooster. And uh, ever since then, uh, I've been hunting uh, Dottie pups. Right. Well, you know, the English breed, for those that are, again, we, I, I know I typically oversimplify things. I tend to, uh, I've said many times, if you ask me what time it is, I'll tell you how to build a watch. But the English, each one of these breeds, all seven of them, have a standard that this dog is generally supposed to look like. When you look at it, you can tell that this is a walker, this is a black and tan, this is a red bone, this is an English. The English standard is probably mo- the most liberal of all of them because it gives you several different varieties of color in right. the breed, correct? Right. And, you know, they might be blue-ticked colored or red-ticked colored. They can be tricolored like a walker dog, right. usually with ticks. Uh, they can't be any solid color like a red bone, uh, you know. But they, they could be black and white or, right. or red and white. Mm-hmm. Well, the dogs that you're breeding, do they have, you know, is there a, a type to them? I mean, do they generally look alike or, or are they... Uh, from all that that different that scope well, of English dogs. Our pups uh, just depend on what kind of stud dog you breed to. I bred her to eight different stud dogs and okay. all the world champions and uh, a couple of blue dogs. And when you breed to a blue tick, you get more color. A blue English, you get more mm-hmm. color. And uh, you breed to uh, red and white, you get a lot more white, red and white pups. So it just depends mm-hmm. on what you mix them with. Do you have any preference? Uh, my preference is uh, full red tick color. Yeah. But red done. and white's fine, too. I had uh-huh. a, a nice pup out of uh, Dottie and Top Gun. It's, uh, he was red and white, old uh, Hatcher River style, and uh, he, he he was a good-looking joker. Now, Top Gun was the world champion, Larry Wilcox's dog, right? Right. Yeah, and he was a red tick dog. Yes, right? he was. Red and white. Red and white. Well, now, was Dottie a red tick? No, she was, yeah, she was full red tick. I see. Did she have some red spots on her, or was she pretty much all tick? Uh, some red spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, these dogs typically will have, like, a red head and then some spots, yeah. but then there will be the body, the, the, the overall color has those small hairs that we call ticks. Right. In that either red or... Or black, which creates a blue look to it. Right. She was full red tick with some red spots. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did she tend to throw? Okay. When she was bred, did she tend to throw pups that looked more like her or more like the stud dog or or Uh, just a mixture? 
It's yeah. the mister. Okay. You, you raise 60 pups out of one female breeder. Each time to a different stud dog, it's going to be a You're going to have them all of, over the place. Right. Uh, right. Can you can you name all of those stud dogs that you bred to? Well, I can stop, try. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, Top Gun, Cage Blue John, the world world champion Awesome, uh, Main Street Jack, Briar Creek Chrome, Jim Ridge's dog. That was probably the probably the best cross was with Chrome. Mm-hmm. And then I bred to uh, world champion John the Baptist. Okay. And I bred to another night champion I had at the house, which that cross, pro- that was probably the worst cross. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, Who are uh, we going to blame for that? Uh, me, I guess. <laughs> well, um, what about family breeding? Do you ever try to breed to dogs that were in some way related to Dottie, or do you did you just breed to dogs that you you know thought were capable or, or you know worthy of being bred to? As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate, especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, REMAX Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan online at evanherald.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. Just dogs that are worthy of being bred to. Uh, a lot of them have uh, our family breeding. And... Uh, I just follow John Wick's theory. You know, I try to find, you know, if you got a good dog with a good pedigree uh, and they have litter mates that tree coons, that's a good sign they're going to reproduce. So I always try to pick a stud dog that I thought would reproduce a higher percentage of coon dogs. Mm-hmm. So I, I would look for uh, more pups out of that cross if, you know, if, if a stud dog has several titles or several nice dogs in that one cross, that's a good sign they're going to reproduce well. Same for the female, you know. And then on down the line, I'll, I do like all grand pedigree. But if you in your all grand pedigree, if you got uh, one that's not titled, then uh, if you call around and see if that particular dog that's not titled is a is a coon dog, then and especially if they have other litter mates doing well, that's a good sign that that's a strong strong pedigree. Right. 
Well, what about the characteristics of Dottie's pups? Does she put a lot of herself into the way those pups act? Or is that, again, depending on the stud dog? It's dependent on the stud dog. But I can still see a lot of Dottie's traits in in, in those pups. You know, but then each stud dog has his mark, you know. Mm -hmm. just... uh, uh, one particular thing I remember about Top Gun is I just love the mouth he put on their his puffs. They mm-hmm. just really love this big, deep mouth, you know, mm-hmm. loud, plenty loud. Describe Dottie as far as her size and all. She was about 55 pounds, mm-hmm. a, little, uh, a little short, but not leggy. Uh, she had uh, lots of heart and drive, just. Uh, you just turn, she never quit. You turn her loose. When you get her out of the box, she's ready to go hunting. So if you open the door, you be better, better be ready to catch her because she's ready. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's coming out ready to go. Yeah. And when you turn them loose, uh, she's she's going she's leading the pack or she's getting something done. She's gonna create mm-hmm. something. And she, she was gonna, like like that at happen. a young age. Yes. Yeah. Just full of energy and heart and drive and mm-hmm. never quit. And and seems to pass that on to her puppies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, well, obviously they're c- competitors. You yeah. Know, when you have that many, twenty nine now out of out of a right. total of sixty. And I'm working on number thirty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the the thing about all these puppies, some of them turned out better than others, and but every one I've gotten back or heard about would run and tree their own coon and and that's a good good sign you know they had a lot of faults some had a lot of faults than than others did some were better than others but nearly all of her pups would run and tree coons so that's uh yeah that's a good thing oh yeah so she she definitely was dominant when it comes to to being a a, a reproducer as we like to say right yeah and that's what i was shooting for a higher percentage of pups that would run in tree mm-hmm. and some of them really made good dogs like uh steel owned by jim ridge and chris girth stone yeah. cold what steel's about out of her yeah he was one yeah. of the, he's a top one and uh also main street blue owned by uh, trevor hack and chris eskew he's a, he's a nice dog and main street hollywood owned by mike bartlett down in uh, uh mississippi near batesville mm-hmm. i see He's a nice dog. Of course, Hatchet River Styles, one I had, he was a nice dog. Yeah. Nat Powell owns him now. I see. He's in Virginia. Right, right. Well, how and many? Of course, my oh, jo- of course, my JoJo female, she's doing good. Yeah, yeah well, there's no question it's a strong, she was strong and contributed to the breed. And it's good that we have these things, like these reproducers lists and so forth that, that let they help the breeder. Absolutely, they help, yeah. that's it helps the breeders a lot. Sure, sure. Well, to me, uh, you know, back in the day, as uh, as I bred dogs myself at one time, and also just observing, you know, uh, I always looked for good dogs out of families or, or out of. Uh, let's let's bring it on down a little more. You mentioned it, I think. A dog, a good dog out of a litter of good dogs. Right. Not just the standout dog out of right. a litter. Right. Yeah. I've had pups out of world champions that didn't turn out. 
but their right. their genetics didn't pair up right. Or, right. So uh, yeah. the, the the stud dogs I chose would uh, would, would be because their reproducing ability, their genetics, uh, right. and their their uh, all grand pedigrees. I like that, but. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but I think I know the answer before I ask you. Is, you know, you bred to these different stud dogs and all. I think you bred because you were looking to get a better litter than the one you had before instead of just selling puppies. Is yes, that right? Yes, I wanted to to improve the percentage of pups per litter. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want to breed the same stud dog. I wanted to breed to a different stud dog, see what those genetics would do, and it opened up uh, more room for future breeding. You know, mm-hmm. if you breed a good good bitch to a good male, good reproducing male, you got quality that's worth reproducing, and that's what I wanted to do. Focus on the the quality worth worth reproducing, not just breeding this dog to that dog, but I wanted to something that would carry forward. Right. And whenever someone did purchase a pup from me, I want them to be able to uh, to come out ahead. You know, in other words, to, mm-hmm. to hopefully have something that would would uh, be worthy of reproducing. Yeah, and, and continuing yeah. to breed, sure. or or and if if not that, at least something that would make a good pleasure dog that won't run and treat their own coon. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, when you raise these puppies out of these uh, stud dogs and so forth, what kind of a regimen do you go through with your puppies? Uh, what do you feed them? How do you, met, you know, vaccinations, all of those? Do you have any any key things that you could share and pass along? Uh, I just fed them when, they, uh, when they're close to weaning age. I would... Uh, Feed them uh, puppy feed and mm-hmm. with uh, warm water in it, and, and just soften uh, let, it a little. Soften bit it a little bit, let mm-hmm. it soak in that. Do you use any kind of milk replacer or anything that, like that with them? No, I. Uh, but I did use uh, beef liver for the mother for a while for Dottie uh-huh. when she when she, when she was uh, a couple of weeks away from having puppies, or and even when she was nursing puppies, I would give her some beef liver. That would help, especially once she had a big litter. She raised right. 11 out of chrome, so I, I fed her uh, beef liver every day, so she would produce okay. a lot more milk. And also, I'd put the mother on the puppy feed about two weeks before the puppies were born. That mm-hmm. helps with the m- milk production. Do you have a favorite kind of puppy feed that you use? I use diamond puppy feed, uh-huh. but just any okay. quality puppy feed would work. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So okay. I've well, had good luck with diamond puppy yeah. feed. And at what age do you home them? Then when you uh, do you sell the puppies usually? I don't like to sell any puppies uh, under six weeks of age. I like I like them to get older and I at least give them their first set of shots before mm-hmm. I sell them. I want to make sure they're healthy. Uh, probably seven eight weeks or so would be a mm-hmm. seven to eight weeks. Seven to eight, yeah, yeah. I think eight would probably be about the average yeah. that most people. Uh, you know, let them go. I just want to make sure that they're sound mm-hmm. before they go and they've had their first set of shots. That way when they are exposed to other dogs, hopefully they won't get uh, parvo. Right. Or... Well, I think that's, you bring up a point there that's really important for the listeners to know, and, and most do, I think. But, you know, that first shot and all that they get, uh, 
you know, that's not really immune in that puppy. I mean, you know, she, her, their mother passes on those antibodies, you right, know, through the, to the pup, through the milk. And, and you know, yeah, you got to start somewhere, but you, you definitely need to follow up right. on it because I think those antibodies that are in the pup uh, are, are, you know, probably it's co- they're combating that vaccine to begin with, so you know. And, I'd, I'd wean them, and then two days later, I'd give them their shot. Yeah. That's how I, uh-huh. that's how I, I did it. Right, right. And what type of uh, uh, worming regimen do you do with your puppies? Just regular puppy warmer. About uh, I started about uh, three weeks. Something like Nemex two or yeah. something like yeah, that. Nemex. Mm-hmm. Nemex. Yeah, yeah. Warm them about every week uh, for about a month. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Have you had any problems with any of the diseases that seem to be so prevalent in coonhounds today? The tick-borne diseases like. Ehrlichia and things like that. Have you had any issues like that with your dogs? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, it's good. Just blasto is the only thing. Blasto, yeah. yeah. I've had two dogs get blasto. Where, did they survive? Style did. Style had it, and he survived, and he's uh-huh. still able to, to reproduce. What did they likely say was the the source of that blasto, do you think? Uh, it's a fungus they get from the, around swamps and mm-hmm. and uh Holes in the ground, hollow right. trees. If they get to digging and stirring up the fungus, they inhale it into their lungs. Right. We just had this conversation with the fellows in, at our camp. You know, I, I'm camped. Uh, oh, I don't know what. How far am I from you here? About four miles or so. Four miles, yeah. And we have uh, five guys in camp over there, and uh, we get into all kinds of conversations. You know about dogs and care of dogs and so forth um well um what um what about young dogs that you're hunting right now do you have any the out of dotty that you're hunting or i have my my grand night jojo female and she's my dotty replacement okay hopefully she have you bred her yet i, I bred her to a uh, uh a horse bred male is a good local male that uh he, he made a grand night but uh didn't nobody knows about him because he hadn't won any big hunts it's mm-hmm. mostly a pleasure hunter that owns hunter that owns him i see mm-hmm. she raised 11 pups but i'm still i couldn't keep any because i'm still working on tile and dotty pups i can only right. hunt so many so yeah so how many puppies are there out there that you could possibly title you think <laughs> I think there's probably uh, there's one more that I know of besides the one I have here, and uh, and that's all I know of. Yeah. Run, run out so, of puppies. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess uh, I have to start working on JoJo puppies yeah. now, or, or yeah. Dotty Grand pups. Right. Did you do any uh, breedings with uh, with frozen semen with Dotty, or did you do them all? Uh, yeah, that was big disappointment uh, i had dotty bred the last time to the wicked vapor uh, with uh was artificially bred and that's when she got blasto and died oh, uh-huh. not not long before the pups were due yeah. and i tried that and then uh, uh so that didn't well work you, you wouldn't necessarily attribute that i mean the fact that you know what was she the pregnant had nothing do to do know? with the blasto it's, yeah. she just happened to 
to pick it up after I, probably after I had her bred mm-hmm. somewhere. Well, let's talk about uh, the type of dog you like. Now, you're going to go out here tonight and you're going to turn JoJo loose, right? Right. Uh, what? How's she going to operate? She's going to open quick. She's going to go hunting. She's an honest strike dog. Uh She's a good track dog. She's still learning. She's only three years old. And uh, I like a dog that uh, stays treed, a good tree dog, got a good mouth that you can hear, a dog that's got some sense about them. I don't like a dog that leaves the country that's just going to fly through the country and with coons setting up, and JoJo usually doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, she'll she'll tree, tree the first coon she comes to most of the time. Is, how is she with the layup coon? Uh, uh, layup. A coon that's been up there uh, for quite a while. Uh, JoJo has to have a track. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did have a dog that was a layup specialist. He could treat coons that had been laying up for a week. I don't know how he did it. He, he'd wind them and tree them and mm-hmm. be accurate. Uh, now, I'd love to have a, a, another dog like him. Right. But he was real tight on the ground. I think that may have come hand in hand. Mm-hmm. You take a silent track dog they're looking for a a coon laying up the tree instead of looking mm-hmm. for a track but jojo is, is she's balanced but she uh, uh she might try to lay up but uh it's not as noticeable as the other dog I have. right well in coon hounds we talk a lot about accuracy and how that how important is that to you uh accuracy's tough this time of year when coons are feeding on acres they, they one coon might climb 10 trees you know in a two acre woods and it's it's hard for a dog to figure that out, but I I like a dog that's accurate. And when the acorns are all have all fallen, the dogs are gonna get more accurate. And then uh, uh, I'll I'll work on them in the, in January and February if they start treeing slick, then I'll I'll send them switch them and send them on. I see. But well, I, we're experiencing I, that this <laughs> week. You know, yeah. tracks of. Uh, there's a lot of speculation, you know, about the coon population here in the refuge this year because they had such a wet, a uh, lot of flooding back in the spring, and the I don't know the science of it. I haven't talked to a biologist, uh, but the, you know the the talk around the camps and all is that. Uh, maybe the coons didn't get to to breed this year. That we're not seeing a lot of kitten coons. Uh, quite honestly, not seeing as many coons as as we uh, usually do. And we're and there's definitely a lot of acorns here. Right. I mean, they're everywhere that I've been this week. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Probably just a lot of flooding. They were not able to. Right. I imagine a lot of them just died. You know, yeah, from, from I would imagine. Flooding, you know, yeah. Well, we talked to a local hunter, and he said that, that deer and squirrels and all seem to be uh, fairly scarce. You and know, it so. seemed like the flooding lasted longer too uh-huh. last year. Yeah, and then you know, of course, you got more hunters now that uh, at White you River. know that, that, that that's going to have an effect on it. Well, it, it does, but you know. That's something that I have not seen personally. Uh, the number and it may increase as the weeks go on here because this is the earliest I've been out here. But you know we've hunted four nights here and haven't you know heard one or two 
cast or, or uh, groups of dogs barking in in right. the places that we've been hunting. You know, but, but they they know the water's high, so they're staying up. I guess. Staying I guess that's true. Well, I, I, this will be airing. Uh, you know, well into the season, and it may be over by the time like, this comes out. Like uh, two years ago, I believe it was, uh, the the water was down. There were a lot of hunters here then. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. Well, you know, the way that we've always hunted this and enjoyed it the most is to get the dogs in the four wheeler on the four wheeler or in the side by side, and drive out one of these. Uh, um, for our trails the designated trails and what we would do for several years is we'd release a dog or two off to the side of the trail uh and then when that dog got struck and got treed and whoever owned it would go to it we'd hear them the dog shut up knowing that they'd be you know either harvested the coon or pulled the dogs off and were heading back we'd turn another dog or two off the opposite direction, you know. And, of course, some guys I'd like, I guess, would like to just go ahead and turn them different directions to see how independent they might be. But uh, uh, my dog, old Hoss, he always, when he was young, he if he wasn't after something, he'd get big ears. And I've had to drive <laughs> way around, you know, and, and uh, pick him up after some, you know, following him on the GPS or some coon hunter would call the cell phone and say hey we got your dog over here <laughs> yep that's, that's but, always uh, a, a concern yeah, you know, yeah but i've found the hunters have always been really good you know to oh, yeah. to look after each other and uh and i, I don't remember any arguments uh, from anybody about that but uh, so uh, well we've been getting along here really well uh Murray, we've uh, been at this almost almost an hour now, but uh, any thoughts that you have? Uh, well, if uh, if you ever want to come to White River, just uh, look at. Don't forget your license and check the water levels, and uh, you don't yeah. have to have a four wheeler to hunt. Uh, there's plenty of walk hunting from the gravel roads. There's miles and miles and miles mm-hmm. of gravel roads. And sometimes that's the overlooked uh, honey hole because right. most people want to hunt off the four-wheeler. You could right. uh, just turn it off the side of the road and probably tree more coons at certain you nights. Can. You can. Know? Well, I remember some of our friends from North Carolina that would come, and they'd go down to the south unit and just hunt off the levee, you know, there. There's a, a, a levee there along the White River, and, yeah. uh, and they'd just park along and head their dogs, you know, toward the timber. Mm-hmm. And uh, plenty of have always been plenty of coon, but like you, you know, our goal has never been to to harvest raccoons on this trip out here. It's been more the fun of just camping. Right. And, and uh, when I say camping, we're not really tent camping. We're, uh, you know, we've got a bed and a bath and that sort of thing. You're really. Uh, set up nice here with a ni- really nice camper and uh, you've got all the comforts of home right here yeah, for sure i like the kind of like the getaway you know yeah about two nights is enough for me three at the most and then mm-hmm. i like to go home and then come back yeah. yeah well i'm beginning to feel the effects <laughs> of hunting five nights in a row now which is something wow. i don't do very often you know we 
we stopped over in Mississippi and hunted in. Well, I hunted the early round of the double header with my pup. I, he hadn't been in a hunt before, so I wanted to give him that experience. And and then we've been over here, you know, hunting four nights in a row. And we've we've got uh, well, what is this Wednesday? So. I have three three more to go, and uh, my White River got adventure will be over. Got to hunt out of a boat last night, didn't you? That's right. We do that, <laughs> and we enjoy doing that, too, because yep. we just go along anywhere you want to pull over and and cast the dogs, you know. It's a, it's a, a Disney it, world for coon hunters, but uh, it, if you come just with the idea that you're going to kill a lot of raccoons, you may be disappointed because right. they can be tough. <laughs> right. You know, tracks make, can be tough. The water can be tough sometimes. And make sure you got a handle on your dog, especially if you got a dog that yeah. gets deep because they, get, they sure. can get across water quick. Yeah. Well, they can do that, and that's one of the things that we always try to uh, to try to avoid, and that makes the, uh, the map cards and all in these garments, you know, uh, or whatever program you use, we kind of look and see if we're heading them toward water or right. away from water. Yep. The big idea is it's not little, the little low places and the knee-deep water that you worry about. It's getting behind deep water where right. you can't get to them and have to get around. I heard a guy had his, his dog cross swam the White River last year, oh which is goodness. highly unusual. Yeah. and uh, mm. But usually a good place to hunt is right along the riverbank. Right. You know, yeah. right along the side of the river because they're not going to cross the river. Yeah. You know. Well, your dad and my dad both were coon hunters, Murray, and and we have this tradition that's been passed down to us, and it's important. I know it is, is to you. Uh, what about that? I enjoy it. I've, I've been doing it since I was 12, and I'm 65 now. <coughs> and it's just been... Uh, I've coon hunted my whole life. At times, I'd had to slow down because of work. But now I'm, I'll be 66 in January. I'm going to start Social Security, so I don't have to work anymore. So I can yeah. really enjoy my sport, and I just enjoy the being out in the woods at night, just experience with the dogs and the people, meeting, make mm-hmm. like here talking with Steve and meeting new folks and sure. seeing what's in the newest uh, type boots to wear and how everybody has their four-wheelers rigged up with the, some with windshields, some with winches, some without. Uh, yeah. yeah. I see some of the uh, campground dogs are, are <laughs> kind of yeah. uh, making a visit. My neighbor here. down here at the campground, he's a, he's a deer hunter and a fisherman. He has a, a four-wheeler, and he's got a, a rack on top where he can carry a boat on top of his four-wheeler. So he can get back and and cross the water and go yeah go get the. I often wondered about bringing my kayak down here. Yep. You know, of course, I could use it to get across, but, uh, but a sixty seventy pound hound on a kayak with me, I don't think that'd be a real smart thing. That, that wouldn't be a very good move there. No, probably not. <laughs> I'd get to to get, experience the ac- aspect of uh, the White River yeah. that I might not like. Need a good flat bottom boat for that. Oh but. yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, well, Murray, this has been a great visit. I've enjoyed it very much, and uh, I hope that there's a lot more years that I'll be able to come to the White River and 
and, and just enjoy the experience of getting away, kind of get off the grid, so to speak, for a few days and just enjoy. The, you know, Arkansas is, is a tremendous state for a sports person, you know, sportsman. Whether and this is a big duck hunting area here, of course, and you know that. And and uh, get out here in the fall of the year and hear the geese flying and uh, and yeah, it's, it's the nice. hounds running at yeah. night and uh, the quiet. The quiet, yeah. To be out in the middle of the woods, like five miles from the nearest house, and hear the geese coming over. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's it's a spiritual experience. It you is. know, it's it really nice. is. Very, very it's nice. While, all the while standing underneath the 300-year-old cypress tree. You know? Yeah. Some of the trees that I made this week are almost as wide as this camper <laughs> at <huge>. the base. <laughs> they're just amazing. You know, yeah, you're almost, they're not as big as the redwood as sequoias, and, you know, the redwoods in California, certainly, but they are huge. And, and you know, the foresight of uh, the the government, you know, in years past that said, you know, this is an area here that ought to be set aside. And uh, uh, it's a tremendous thing. It's something that I really knew nothing about until about 10 years ago. Yeah. And uh, it's like 5 to 10 miles wide, and it starts uh, near Interstate 40 at the Clarendon, and it's 90 miles to the Mississippi River, and it's both sides of the White River. And even north of here, there's the Cache River Refuge and other refuges right. that uh, they have yeah. set aside for, uh, sure. for hunting, duck sure. hunting. And when you're yeah, well, out in the Midwest, or or as I am in Florida, very difficult to find a place to run a dog. And yeah. we're only 15 miles from Stuttgart, Arkansas, the duck hunting capital of the world, they call it. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Well, it's been great to visit with you, Murray, and uh, I wish you luck in your continued quest to get that 30th uh, title dog out of Dottie and... Uh, uh, you know that that that's quite an accomplishment. And, I appreciate uh, it, and I applaud your your determination and your and your attitude about doing that. We have a a little way that we close out each one of these podcasts, and it's uh, goes back to a hound friend of mine back in West Virginia uh, that when there was a conversation about which way the track was going, <laughs> and uh, they said, "Well, uh, John, I think your dog might be." Uh, and it might be on the back track. And John said, boys, you follow your hound, and I'll follow mine.